Hello, Ed here. Ahead of today's conversation, a little bit of context. We're talking today to two Amnesty International researchers about the Qatar World Cup. You'll have heard about many of the issues. So in this conversation, we touch on LGBTQ issues, issues of freedom of expression, human rights, and especially on the migrant workers who've built the stadiums, the roads, the railways, the metros that will be used over the next four weeks. Keep them in mind as you enjoy the football and enjoy this conversation. So I'm here with May Romanos and Fabian Goa, who are researchers at Amnesty International. We're going to talk about the Qatar World Cup. May, Fabian, great for you to join me. Thanks very much for having us, Ed. Yeah, Fabian, long-time listener, first-time caller. So thank you very much for introducing us. I do appreciate it. And it's a conversation I wanted to have for a while, really, because I think like many fans, I have some cognitive dissonance about this World Cup, but I have many, many, many memories as a kid growing up about the World Cup and how magical it is. And then I think people have paid a price for this World Cup. And anyway, so let's start from the top. You're you're from Amnesty International, May. T- tell us about the organisation and your role within it and uh, how, how you focus on Qatar. Th- thank you so much, Ed. I'm happy to be with you and, and Fabian today. So, yeah, I've been working with Amnesty International for the past 12, 12 years, a bit over, focusing mainly on the MENA region, working as a human rights researcher on the Gulf in particular, Initially started working on Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Yemen and Oman, but then in 2017 moved to the focus fully on the situation of migrant workers and the lead of the 2022 World Cup. Great. And, and Fabian? Um, so my story is quite a long, a long one as well. So I've worked with Amnesty since 2010 on and off. That includes on many different projects. I worked in the US research team. I now actually work in the Europe program. But I spent a long time working with May and others on the in the refugee and migrant rights team, focusing specifically on labor rights in the Gulf, in particular connected to the Qatar 22 World Cup. So I'm slightly freestyling a bit today, not so much on uh, amnesty lines. <laughs> Great. Well, let, let's start. Let's start from the basics around Qatar. Tell us about the country, the situation there. I just want to level set for everyone listening. What is Qatar? Where is it? Where does it sit in the world? How How, how is it governed? And then we'll get into the World Cup. Yeah, so Qatar is a small Gulf country as part of the Gulf Corporation countries, which are Saudi, Yemen, no, Saudi, UAE, Bahrain, Kuwait, and Oman. So it's a very small country. That's the shock why it has got the right to host this World Cup, but also it was part of its appealing bit, kind of, it will be all concentrated in one city, so people won't have to travel much. It is a country that is conservative, governed by the Islamic Sharia that is part of its law, but yet it also is an open country in terms of if you go there, it's also a country that has benefited a lot from the revenue from gas, so it's one of the top gas exporters, and then that means that it has a lot of money. And that's probably where this whole dream of hosting mega sporting events came from back in back in 2010. It, it's not a country that plays a huge role at the international scene initially, but increasingly so. Be seeing what happened with Afghanistan, seeing the role it play with moderating most of the conflicts in the region. Also, I think the, the power or soft power sports give this country. I think increasingly we've been hearing more and more on Qatar as becoming more of an international player. In this, in this scene. Laws are 
So in terms of in general, we do have as Amnesty serious human rights concern regarding many issues in the country. We start by restrictive freedom of expression restriction, no independent human rights organization allowed to operate in the country, laws that stifle the right for people to express themselves, close monitoring of the of the population online and offline. You have also serious concerns about discrimination against women, LGBT community. It still has the death penalty. It, is, uh, it doesn't really execute many people, but it still imposed death penalty on people two years ago after 20 years of a moratorium on execution, they did sadly execute a migrant workers in the country. Also, we have serious issues on related to migrant workers in the belt of the Sword Cup, which I think we can, we can explore and, and talk more further on. There is no democracy in the way that we consider in terms of how we can have election or though I think for the first time in October last this year, the country held its first election for the Shura Council, which is like a, a bit of, of, semi-parliament. The law sadly was very discriminatory, as in some people from Qataris were not allowed to take part of it from certain tribes, which really led, led to some some protesting this law and many been arrested as a result of protesting the law, which again gives an idea about the lack of freedom of association and even assembly in the country. It is governed by the emir from the Al-Sani. So, so the Al-Sani royal family is the one governing and holding power and moving forward the country. I think it's good to give some context. And obviously, there's been an increasing amount of media coverage about about the issues surrounding the World Cup, but especially about labour rights and migrant worker rights. And I, I think it's good to dive into some of those issues and think about the cost that real people have paid for building this World Cup as we uh, uh, as we all enjoy the football. So let's talk about labour rights. Can you explain the system for immigration and migrant workers? So the the, system, the name that a lot might, may resonate with a lot of people is obviously the Kafala system. It's a slightly misleading name in the sense that it's actually really a combination of laws that you find across all of the Gulf countries and also in Lebanon as well. What it does is it governs the immigration process interacts very closely with the labor laws and labor legislation. And I think like crucial context to understanding it is, as you alluded to, it's that not only is Qatar one of the richest countries per capita in the world, it's also, I guess, a kind of minority governed population as well, in the sense that only about 300,000 of the population are Qatari nationals and citizens. The vast majority of the population are migrant work, more foreigners, and, and of that population, most of them are migrant workers, low-paid migrant workers as well. So we're talking about 300,000 citizens, whereas I think the population has now increased to like nearly 3 million. So the, you can tell the kind of disparity okay. in terms of the numbers. And all of those migrant workers are governed by this kind of what's called a sponsorship system. The sponsorship law it basically requires that most or all foreign workers have to have a sponsor who is their, typically their employer. And the way that system has generally worked over the years is that the employer therefore has incredible control over that migrant's rights in terms of what just their lived experience. That includes their immigration experience, but also their working experience as well, their employment situation. Because typically their, their, their residency and their employment would be tied to that visa. So what that would typically mean is that migrant workers couldn't freely change employer, for example. 
they need the permission of their current employer to be able to move to another job, making it very difficult, obviously, to like bargain upwards, to get better wages or just to change your working environment. Up until fairly recently, the employer could therefore could also have the power to prevent a worker leaving the country, so affecting their right to return home. And the other kind of crucial aspect to this is that there's something called absconding, which again is a slightly separate law. It's kind of archaic, but it, it makes up the whole, it, it contributes to the function of this so-called profiler system in that it's a criminal offense to leave your employer without, without permission. So if you put right. all of that together, you essentially have a situation where, as I said, the work, the employer effectively has almost kind of complete control over the foreigner's experience of time spent in Qatar. And one way that we describe that system is one that actively facilitates exploitation and forced labor. There have been reforms, which I'm sure we'll get into into, in in the discussion, but that for most migrant workers building the World Cup, this has been the the system under which they've lived and, and worked in Qatar. Okay, mate, I want to talk a little bit about the specifics around the World Cup because it was it was migrant workers that built the stadiums, the shiny new stadiums that we we're all going to see in the World Cup. So what was the experience of those migrant workers over the last, what, I think it's 12 years since the, the bid was won? And and what are the, some of the things that Amnesty is, has uh, been reporting on and researching over those years? To note also that I think we refer to migrant workers, but basically the system covers all foreign workers so it's just like even if you're not necessarily coming to a low-paid job or a low-skilled job, you are governed by the system. And I think right. the, the difference is that the lower you are in this chain, the more vulnerable you are. Yes. But and also obviously a lot of racism and discrimination around this that 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 adds to the to the issue. Obviously, if you are a white Westerner, your chances are likely to be treated better and also have better positions. But the system is ultimately the same for any foreign national in the country, regardless of their nationality. But the vulnerability obviously is different in, in this and the system facilitates this. So for migrant workers, I think predominantly those building and not only the stadium, I think we keep making the point that it's not only about the stadium. When Qatar was awarded this World Cup, it didn't only need stadium. There was a whole right. infrastructure that was needed. The road, the metro, the airport, the hotels, the accommodation. Like this, the World Cup will not happen on its own in a stadium. What about the worker working on the road that will take you to the stadium? Or on the metro that will help you commute between the stadiums? And it's important to look at this because if we look only on the stadium, we're talking about no more than 2% of migrant workers. But we are also worried about the other 98% without whom this World Cup would not have been possible. And therefore, I think the situation in general back when when this when FIFA awarded this World Cup to Qatar, the system that Fabian described was still in place, totally in place, has been now dismantled to some extent, but still in place. We come back to this. But bearing in mind that migrant workers, mainly I think the most vulnerable to abuses are those coming to low-skilled jobs, working in the construction sector or, or, or cleaning or security or coming predominantly from Southeast Asia, India, Nepal, Bangladesh, Philippines, increasingly African country, Kenyans, but also some Arab countries like Egypt, Morocco. So these, these workers, to, to get to Qatar, have already paid what we call recruitment fees. So to, to buy this job in Qatar, you can't right. come in unless you paid. And this varies from nationality. Some between a thousand to three thousand US dollar is the average that we have documented of migrant workers paying to. So I mean, imagine this: you pay for your job, 
And that already you're starting in the wrong in the wrong place here. So the workers are already indebted as they as they come to the company. Yeah. It's not only this; they also take loans to pay for these debts, right? Okay. And the loans could be at a high interest rate. You come to work for a job that will pay you no more than two hundred dollar a month. So if you pay this amount to for two hundred, it takes workers months and sometimes years to just repay their debt. But still, they want to come for lack of job opportunities. And when you sit with a worker, they will tell you, so that my kids don't have to go through what I'm going. I want a little bit of money sent back home to educate my kids so that they don't have to go through what I'm going. And I think that's a, the, the, the sad thing is that when you build on vulnerability of people and then don't do anything to, to protect them. So you arrive to Qatar having been promised by these recruitment agencies back home, these jobs in the World Cup, you know, sites, building, helping Qatar. And sometimes they will tell you eight hours a day, accommodation include, food included. So I think very, very appealing job. Then the migrant worker will just really take up loans, debts, borrow money from the family, pay this recruitment fee and just come there hoping that actually this is this is going to save his family from and support the family financially. You arrive to the country, you're trapped by the system and trapped is literally what happens because as Fabian said, you couldn't leave and you couldn't change jobs. So you're just in this system. Your conditions are different to what you were promised. So you're deceived in this. What are the options of leaving? You need the permission of sometimes the very person who's responsible of this deception and abuse to leave, it's not going to happen. You already have to pay back your debt. So even if the job is not what you were promised, you can't say, okay, I'm out. I'll I'll book my ticket and come back. No, because you also, even if it's $200 paid three months in delays or paid with, you still need this money to repay your loan. Working conditions, it's a very difficult working, depending on your jobs, obviously. But for those working in construction, it's already a very physical and tiring jobs. We know that the, the weather conditions in the country, you're talking about eight months where can get over 40 degrees in Celsius. So it's very hot weather, very like the risk of heat stress is very high. And we're talking eight, nine years ago where the level of protection that wasn't were in place for over eight years were just minimal couple of months you can't work outside for a few hours that was what offered for these workers to work so all this i think adds to the vulnerability and the difficult working condition and yet you carry on just because right. you know you need this money you want to you want to continue we have documented the big issue remains wage theft what we refer to not even this is the money is little but also sometimes you're not paid or not you're not paid at all taking this to court that's another battle you, it won't get you anywhere. So you kind of feel trapped. And and I remember Fabien and I, that was probably the f- first time I went to, to Qatar was with Fabien to uh, interview workers who has been trapped for a few months. They con- the company went bust. They actually built the cooling system in the Lusail, a city where the Lusail Stadium is, is taking place. And uh, it was the first time, 2017, Fabian, I don't know if you remember, we went there together and then we went to this labor camp and interviewed the workers. And and honestly, it was probably the, the most of the difficult experience you can have because you're there. These people are traps. They, they didn't have food. They were relying even on charity for food, let alone electricity, water, air conditioning. It's super hot in these camps. And yet one, one will look at you and then will say, yeah, but my, my father is sick. I want to go back home. But there's no exit permit. The company disappeared. No one's going to pay their tickets. So, and you can tell like the level of distress that is happening. Not to say that this is the situation of all migrant workers, but they were just 
really widespread okay. on on different level these abuses were widespread there have been different reports about the number of fatalities involved i think the guardian reported six and a half thousand since the world cup was bid was won and that's all migrant workers i guess not just across the the world cup specifically but the Qatari authorities have been, well, they've obfuscated quite a lot about what has happened to, to people there. So talk a little bit about the fatalities. Obviously, they, they it captures the headlines and the abuses are much more widespread than that. But I just want to stop there for a moment and have a think about that. I think it's really important when thinking about the issue of death, just like the word that comes to mind for me is just transparency, because that's what has been absent the whole way through. And most actors would recognize that. And that's why there is obfuscation. That's why there's polemics around numbers when in some way the numbers aren't really the most glaring issue. The issue is that there is a concern, there has been a registered concern since Qatar won the World Cup, the, the bid in 2010, that there was an issue, a, a trend, a worrying trend of in particular young men dying in unexplained circumstances. Right. And the fact that kind of squabbling in the, over headlines in, in 2022 is still the, the kind of the level of discussion about this is, I think, really damning. May mentioned the temperatures, and one of the major kind of concerns is around heat stress. People are working outdoors in one of the hottest countries in the world and where it's incredibly humid as well. So the protections are not good enough. For a long, long time, they've just been this kind of blunt instrument of kind of chosen, selected number of weeks every year where there is there are some restrictions on whether people can work outdoors during those hours. But that's obviously not tied to kind of real actual temperatures and humidity uh, levels. And so it's just ineffective. And the, I think the, the other thing is that it's, there is generally a problem with enforcement of any labor protections that, that those that do exist. Uh, just in the historical context, I'd add that in 2012, I believe, the Qatari government commissioned DLA Piper to do a general review of its labour system. The law firm, yeah. Exactly, yeah, the, the international law firm. So they were, they were doing this for the Qatari government. The, the, the report was eventually leaked, and it's still publicly available now, in, I think, mid-2013. And what was important, well, there are many kind of damning findings there and important recommendations which weren't acted on. When you look at the issues of death, there were figures in there which you know, showed hundreds of Nepalese and Indian workers dying. And the recommendations that DLA Piper gave to the Qatari government at that stage was to conduct or to, to, to conduct a independent peer-reviewed study into why there was there was this concerning trend of unexplained deaths, especially related to cardiac arrest. To our knowledge, that didn't happen. This was in 2012. And in 2013, the UN Special Rapporteur on Migrant Rights conducted a visit to Qatar. That was one of his recommendations as well. Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch were all making these recommendations that early on, that this was an urgent issue that needed kind of rigorous investigation and urgent action. And that just didn't happen. And so the fact that like I said, the fact that it's still this kind of squabbling over the figures. And the reason is the reason there are debates and obfuscation over figures is because there isn't publicly available data which is shared by the Catholic government. Right. Yeah. 
So the figures that you were referring to in the Guardian report, for example, were, I understand, were as a result of freedom of information requests done in the labor sending countries, the home countries. That shows the extent which to which journalists, activists, people have to just go to dig for some information. How can you address an issue, an issue as serious as this if there isn't actually data available? So I just wanted yeah. to, to kind of flag that historical context and just show that there has been such a lack of urgency. And that's why we're one of the contributing factors of why we're in the situation we're in today connected to the World Cup. Thanks. And May, the Tories have publicly said there's been a lot of reforms. What What's the truth of that? Has the situation changed for migrant workers, both in their safety and their conditions? Yeah, I mean, before I answer this, I just want to expand a little bit on what Fabien said in relation to the deaths, because I think he gave really a good historic background to 2012, 2013, which I would urge us to think, imagine if these steps were taken back then, maybe how many lives would have been saved. Right, right. Because nothing has happened since since then. And 2022, we're still at the same place where we we continue to urge the authorities to investigate these deaths. It's very difficult, and the, and the polemic around this number stems from the fact that it, Qatar said 6,500 did not die on the stadium, and that's where I think we started fighting over this number. The reality is no, thousands. I mean, Qatar published data saying 15,000 non-Qataris died in the last decade from all occupation, all reason, all ages, on any. So without this data, even if they put something out, it's just totally unclear, opaque, and doesn't allow you to draw any conclusion. But what it offers this data is that from these numbers, thousands remain unexplained deaths. You look at the certificate, you have a 20-year-old Nepali who was deemed fit, passed his medical test, arrived to the country, worked eight eight hours outside, nine hours outside, died in his sleep after several months of facing this condition. You look, cause of death, natural cause, cardiac arrest. So the health experts, we, we asked about this. They were like, no one died. Ultimately, we all die from a cardiac arrest. This is not a cause of death. There must be an underlying cause of death that led to this. And unless this is investigated, you can't know. There's been also very credible studies suggesting that heat stress could be a contributing factor to these deaths mm-hmm. when you're young, when you work outside with no protection. with no, So unless you know this and you investigate this, you won't be able to know. And ultimately, who's paying the price? Not only the family, not only the victim, but also their families, because they are deprived from, first of all, knowing how your loved one dies. You just receive them back in a coffin with a piece of paper saying natural death. Yep. But I'm a mother of a 20 years old who's healthy. How do you say natural death? And ultimately, these are all the main breadwinners in their families. What is the compensation that had given to this family? A widow in, the, in, in a patriarchal society who lost her husband is left with two kids underage, small kids, with no money, with no resources, and having to pay, let's go back to these recruitment fees. You die, you don't die, you have to pay this. And then, so I think that's ultimately what we've been calling for. Investigate, but also compensate. Money won't solve, won't bring loved ones, but it will go a long way in supporting these families to rebuild their lives. Okay, well, it's a good segue into the campaign that you've been running. And I know it's Amnesty and a few other international organisations together. I think it's called Pay Up FIFA, asked for more than $400 million in compensation for these migrant workers' families. And and this has been the support of the English FA and a few European FAs, but no actual money as of yet so can you talk about the status of that campaign 
what you're asking for and what you expect might happen. Yeah, I mean, to start with, I think this campaign came on the back of basically looking into the historic abuses that happened and what has been done. So we know that in the past two years, Qatar did introduce some labor reforms, better on paper than implemented, enforcement remain weak, but there is some, some at least legal progress that has been achieved. There's been, they set up a compensation fund themselves to that pays some of the unpaid wages, but also over a limited period of time, just recent cases. And and we were faced with a situation that there have been 10 years of ongoing abuse that remain unaddressed, be it Qatar as a country who has the obligation to remedy abuses, but also FIFA as, as, as a business, as an enterprise under the UN guiding principle for business and human rights. They have the responsibility to remedy abuses that they contributed to. And the argument we've been, ma- we've been making, which no one is denying, but no one wants to compensate, is that FIFA knew or should have known when it, you awarded this World Cup to Qatar 10 years ago, that there this will come with a high, ta- high price of human rights abuse and violence. And yet you went on, awarded this tournament to Qatar without imposing any conditions on the country to protect labor or reform the system. Fast forward 10 years later, a lot has been lost, be it lives, injuries, wages, money, recruitment fees, and people have suffered. So what we are calling for is, and honestly, the compensation fund, so we're calling for a big remediation program that will will start with FIFA and Qatar coming together, committing to it. And the 440 million is an illustration. We believe it, it, it will be more. But what you need is actually independent experts coping the projects, coping the abuses that happen, and eventually putting the price. How we came to this number, we said, okay, the team who are going to make, play the Sword Cup are going to be paid $440 million. What about those who built the Sword Cup to make to allow these teams to play? Don't they deserve something? And the, that was maybe an illustration to say, okay, put aside $440 million for these workers who made this possible and to compensate them. But, but that, I think, is a wider call for us that the starting point, commit for now, but let's sit together with independent experts. Amnesty will not play a role in this, but this is what we really want to see these Qatar and FIFA come together and build this remediation program. Right. And for context, it's probably the most expensive World Cup ever. Eight brand new stadiums or the infrastructure you talked about in the context of the overall spend, 440 million is not very much. No, I mean, FIFA is going to make $6 billion out of the Sword Cup, so $440 million is peanuts for them. Yes, it's, it's about two weeks of the English Premier League transfer window as well. And so, yeah, not a lot. And Fabian, I mean, what, what do you think about the football's reaction to this? There's been public support, although I'd say not very loud public support from some of the FAs, but not all of the, of the countries attending the World Cup. It's encouraging to see some FAs supporting the campaign. That's a very first step. There's so much more to do. And like for me, you know, as as a football fan, as someone, you know, who's interviewed workers for connected to the World Cup over a number of years, I can't help but feel some regret that this is again still the stage of the discussion. Because as May mentioned, FIFA should have known that this was these were the risks in 2010. They were certainly Didn't told. Know, I think yeah, exactly, but... yeah, and and all it was all there in the bid document, like you said. So much new infrastructure required, which would mean a significant increase in the workforce, which was clearly going to be migrant workers toiling under 
an exploitative system. So all of this was laid out, and I think it's really regrettable that FIFA spent so much time trying to deflect responsibility. The blatter, and I think it was Jérôme Bach, who was his general secretary or something. Yeah. I think I remember him saying around 2012, 13, 2014, FIFA's not the UN. This isn't our responsibility. And they spent a long time rejecting the facts and the framework that may refer to the UN guiding principle on business and human rights, because they were effectively making the argument that they're like a charity or a social enterprise rather than a business, where we know that FIFA makes a lot of money, especially from the World Cup. So the fact they spent so long just trying to distance, deny responsibility, spy the, de- deny the fact that they're direct partners with the, the governments that they that they select to host their, their, their flagship tournament. I think that so much time has been wasted and the football world did drag its feet really badly. And I think to bring it slightly up to date, because we mentioned Blatter, Infantino ran on being the kind of reform candidate. He made some, you know, loose positive noises. I remember in 2016, Amnesty published a report about wide-scale abuses, including forced labor, exploitative recruitment fees at Khalifa International Stadium, a World Cup stadium. And that was in 2016, just before Infantino became the new president of FIFA. He, one of the first things he did was go to Qatar and tour that stadium and others. And he was making kind of positive noises around those times. And I always remember there was a document which came out. It was called like FIFA Vision 2.0 or something like that. And it was kind of his like manifesto document. And within that, there was like a little paragraph on human rights. And he said the, the text said, made a commitment that FIFA would pursue its human rights obligations and responsibilities with the same vigor or something as its commercial interests, which was quite a statement to make. And I think it's notable that we never saw that text again. <laughs> like they, right. I think that was what he was saying when he was campaigning. That's what he was saying when he was first elected. And while there was a lot of attention around, and you know, maybe even a, a serious threat that the World Cup could have been taken away from Qatar at that point. So that was the noise then, and it's never quite been matched. And FIFA then did establish its own human rights policy, which is largely in line with the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. But... Again, it's that question of that being converted into action. And the fact that, you know, we've, that human rights organizations are having to push football associations to push the FIFA just shows like how there has been a kind of distancing of responsibility uh, throughout this whole process. And we've talked about the price, the effect on workers, on their families, the lives lost, the lives lost all the, the wages that have been uh, stolen, etc. So there's so much wrong that's happened, but like the World Cup is happening. <laughs> At the end of all of this, the project in terms of the hosting of the World Cup is, is going ahead, and FIFA has kind of achieved its objective. And so I, th- I think there does have to be reflection on the fact that FIFA has a s- significant responsibility in the fact that it hasn't acted on its commitments. It spent so long distancing itself from any responsibility that it clearly held. And that that's damning. Like it's it's really regrettable, and it's it's difficult to stomach as a football fan for sure. Because there was yeah. there was a pathway whereby there was a positive story to tell about football here. But and while there there's, there is still that opportunity, I think we could have seen avoided a lot of harm if the football world acted much earlier. Yeah, and I, I noticed Infantino was talking the other day about how some of these policies you mentioned will be in, enshrined in the bid process for the 2030 World Cup and, and onwards. 
Although if re- media reports are to be believed, Saudi Arabia and Egypt may be bringing a joint bid together, which will uh, test that policy somewhat, I would say. Kifa, I think in that sense is, yes, there have been some progress in terms of introducing human rights policy, bidding criteria, moving forward that tournaments, I mean, all countries should be allowed to request these tournaments, but then they should be assessed based on the human rights criteria, clear right. one, clear assessment, what are the risks, what impact this will have on human rights, what are the mitigating measures, what action plan you will put in place and then decide. But then I think it's also important to note that this should not only be done for World Cup events. Because FIFA introduced all this bidding and then went on and gave the China the Club World Cup. China the Club And then you just hear where, where you start questioning. So when is FIFA going finally to walk the talk? So it's very nice to use these, but human rights are not there or these criteria should not stay on these papers. And then you go on and tour the world and give these tournaments right and left to countries where you know that there will be serious risk for human rights, and yet you do nothing to stop them or prevent them. Yep. And I think moving forward, we, we, we know that this World Cup has highlighted more human rights concerns and issue. And moving forward, we hope that this really will have a domino effect on other tournaments, but not only until we shouldn't wait until 2030 to see this in place. I think every tournament should be really measured according to these human rights criteria to ensure that actually sports drive change and does not contribute to human rights abuses. Yeah, and, and thanks thanks for bringing that up, because actually it's an argument that's often made, isn't it, that major sporting events like the World Cup, which is the biggest of all of them, helps drive political change. And it, and it seems so rarely to be the truth, actually. And, and yeah, sport washing as a term has become overused, perhaps to the point that it's not very clear what we mean. But the fact that for the next two weeks we'll all be watching football and the gaze of the world will be on the football. And I very distinctly remember after or during the 2018 World Cup that people forgot about the negative aspects of holding that, that tournament in Russia and focus very much on the football and the reflected glory of that. So I think it's, it's on all of us to take a pause while we're watching the games and think about what it really means. I hope you're right. I hope that the gaze of the world forces some change in how these tournaments are awarded and run. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't look promising, to be honest, because Infantino yesterday issued a letter saying, focus on sport, not on human rights, and these are politics. And I think the minute you just start to equating human rights with politics, that's where I think you start losing the meaning of being able to create change and, and weaponize human rights. Right. As, as as a political tool. And so I think we were very disappointed with Infantino's letter on, on Sunday urging FAs to focus on football. And 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 I feel like personally felt like is if you tell you tell parents, go enjoy your night out, but without offering someone to look after their kids. So it's just like if Infantino came forward and said, Enjoy football, we will deal with the human rights, we have responsibility, we will fulfill this. We are committed to, compensate, to compensating those who suffered to make this happen. Moving forward, we will ensure human rights are better incorporated in our decisions and are basically form a key part of any decision. We, then I think you would have said, okay, there is some hope. But at, as we stand today, I think it's a, it's, it sounds very bleak to see that something will change. We, we, can, we remain hopeful because we know human rights gain are slow, but we were hoping for stronger stands from him. Yes, I too was pretty dismayed, but not surprised by 
that letter. It, it was not far off. Shut up and dribble. And but but let's remember, like sport, international sport is politics. There's a reason why this World Cup is in Qatar, and this is not about the sporting heritage of the country. So the two are inextricably linked and always have been. So so what does this mean for fans? And uh, as I said at the top, I'm I'm a football fan. I love the World Cup, but I can't help feel that this one is completely different. What should we do? Should we just turn off the TV and not bother watching? So I would argue that there are examples from fan culture which maybe point to something a bit more positive because I think we're it, like like you were both saying that Infantino letter I think shows betrayed a cynicism in terms of how FIFA has adopted the language of human rights, but then when it matters. They revert to type. But so, for example, if you, if there are ultra groups, for example, in Bayern Munich, who've been really committed and really dedicated, who have campaigned at matches. Yes. Banner, banner at Hamburg yesterday, I think. Yeah. Noting some of the comments from one of the ambassadors about, about the LGBT community. Yeah, and, and the campaign has been fairly sustained. They've critiqued their own club. Like as you know, Ultras of Bayern Munich, they've critiqued the kind of sponsorship deals which Bayern Munich has repeatedly kind of renewed with with Qatari state owned companies. And right. they've raised exam they've raised awareness around the treatment of migrant workers, specifically hosting events with migrant workers, bringing them to Germany to speak about their experience in, in Qatar. So there are some positive there and there are other examples to point to. I, I saw even last week, so taking it slightly away from, from Qatar, but you know, there's fan groups in Newcastle, for example, leaning against uh, over the Saudi takeover mm-hmm. of their team, highlighting human rights abuses. So when fans and I think that points to what I think a lot of this is out of fans' controls. Uh, fans controlled. Fans didn't choose where the World Cup is going. They don't have input. Football doesn't operate in a kind of democratized process. I think my my bottom line ask is always just not to which. And the reason I say that is because you often see what in conversations I have, I often hear this is that to kind of appease the fact that we just love football so much and it's difficult to turn off the football when you want, when you're excited about a match and especially the World Cup or if it's your club playing. Fans should, I I really hope the fans don't regurgitate the propaganda because I think that that's often something that some fans do to kind of appease their discomfort about around things before that are beyond their control. They can say, oh, well, you know, I've heard that the deaths, it's it's not exactly as bad as people say or something like that. And actually, there have been reforms. And so it's fine. I can just watch the football. I don't think it's for, for us to tell fans what to do necessarily. But my kind of call, I guess, to other fans is just to to learn as much about what's actually connected to the sport that we love and challenge that where we can, whether it is within our, within our clubs, connected with the football associations, you know, the, in terms of the national teams, and just push back against that, use the, the kind of passion we have for the sport to mobilize, to organize, and to resist the kind of, like I said, the kind of propaganda, which the, the powerful elements within the sport in terms of FIFA, the host governments, and the major sponsors that they like to push to justify the fact that they're, they're all making serious money and serious bank at the mm-hmm. end of the day. So I guess I just call on fans to kind of use their loyalty and their passion to to just try to fight against that info war because there is sustained kind of propaganda coming from the kind of powerful actors in this sense. It's it's very simple online, I have to say. One of the things the English FA said 
was that they wanted to do something that was more than just a t-shirt quote and and actually what they've done is wear a patch on the shirt which appears to me to be less than a t-shirt but do you do you expect may any of the teams and the players as as we start to watch the world cup will bring any of these issues to light are you hopeful that a message will be out there as well that's countering the propaganda that fabian talked about yeah, I think from the beginning, we were trying to all the time differentiate between the players, the fan, who literally do, do not really have any any make yes. or decisions in this. And basically FIFA and the FAs who have responsibilities to ensure, at least the English FA, ensure that sending the England team to Qatar is not going to contribute to human rights abuse. And hence the responsibility falls on their shoulder. And it's unfair to put the players in, in, in the front seat and say, OK, what are you going to do? Having said this, I think we we really welcome and hope to see players using the platform they have, fans using the, the platform they have to ensure that they shed the light on the situation and speak out about this human right. There have been a lot of calls for boycott, which is something we respect from the standpoint of freedom of expression, because if people feel about this way, then that's their right to, to express it. As honesty, we feel that this World Cup still brought an opportunity to shed the light on an important issue. Without it, I don't think anyone would have heard about Qatar or migrant workers. Now people speak about kafala as, as it's, it's a word that everyone knows that this is system problematic in these Gulf countries. So the level when you speak about many of the FAs, few, few, I would say even a few months ago, they didn't even understood what is their responsibility in sending teams. What is due diligence? What do you mean we need to check on the hotels and on the staff? It's not our job. We didn't make this decision. But now I think there is more level of awareness of human rights responsibilities. On the top of the slow progress that we have seen in Qatar, we're not there yet. So in that sense, I think it did it did bring bring change in, in, in a positive way. That's what we, co- we hope to continue seeing. I think I'm not necessarily a football fan, as in I don't follow, but I am a World Cup fan, as in Coming from the Middle East, it's a huge back home where we are. And I I feel conflicted sometimes about where I stand on this World Cup. Because in 2010, I was so happy when Qatar was awarded this World Cup. Then I think I joined Amnesty. I started working on this and I started to realize the the high human rights price that has has been paid for this. And for me, I think I still feel it's it's unfair for this to be taken away from the region, from, from the people, because it matters for, for people like in the region to really enjoy this World Cup. It's a huge event. We really we don't have good teams, but we fight amongst each other to support the, the international other teams. But also, I think for many migrant workers, it did bring some positive opportunity to work, to, to find jobs if you happen to be in, in the good condition. So I never felt that opposing all this is the solution. Why I felt the solution is using this to put pressure and continue building as fan, as player. I think that that's important to go there and raise the concern and speak up and not just go right. there and brush things under the carpet and say, oh, it's, it's okay, I can drink here, I'm fine. Right. So I just think that that's where I feel we, we need some more power to be used, the power that we all have as human rights organizations, as fans, as players to play a role in this. Okay, good message. Thanks for that. Well, May, Fabian, I really appreciate this. Fabian, your goal now is to recruit May as a United fan. Well, I've been working on that for the past few years, don't worry. Work on it harder. I... <laughs> Thanks for the conversation, guys. I think this has really put some good context around the World Cup and the issues. And I know this is a United podcast, but as you know, we've always touched on the geopolitics of football and issues wider than just the game itself. So enjoy the World Cup as much as you can. 
given the context of everything and thanks very much for joining me thank you thanks Ed.